is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our next story comes from Christy Stone Hamrick and her piece in Life Set about something we all think about and all probably think we don't do enough of. Exercise. Here's her unique take. Yeah! Oh, hello. I'm White Goodman, owner, operator, and founder of Globo Gym America Corp. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be stuck with what you got. Hey, Rory, looking good. Here at Globo Gym, we understand that ugliness and fatness are genetic disorders, much like baldness or necrophilia. And it's only your fault if you don't hate yourself enough to do something about it. And that's where we come in. (laughs) So, Americans are fat. At least that's the running monologue playing out in more media outlets than we can completely ignore. Get in my belly! Come on! But somewhere along the journey from childhood to retirement, the solution to that problem has become the New Year's resolution that almost everyone makes and almost everyone hates. Exercise more. As children, playing outside was the reward, not the punishment. Now you're all in big, big trouble. So much so that a ridiculous trend in too many elementary schools today is for children to be deprived of outside playtime in a stationary timeout at recess as punishment. Work, 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 everyone. Because we all know that the one thing that helps discipline a hyperactive child to be calm is enforced stillness. Go stand in the corner. Or not. Yet trudging through the institutional world of education, exercise became the thing that the quintessential sadistic gym teacher enforced. Those that can't do, teach. And those that can't teach, teach gym. Right there! Complete with tests, metrics, and goals for the unattainable. The joy of movement dimmed as the realization that perfection was just not on the menu for most of us grew. And there was the math to prove it. Charts, indexes, measurements, graphs, all calculated to show the weary where they fall short. Exercise stopped being many people's entertainment when it stopped being fun. I can't be the only person who finds modern day conversations about exercise about as compelling as a marketing report full of deliverables and metrics, or like a performance review by a cranky boss who won't notice the 10 things you did right, but only the one thing you did wrong. Here we are, look, This is fitness. These things are correlates, maybe components, but absolutely positively subordinate to what happens here. You with me? I already live in a world of deadlines and demands. Whether at home or at work, I must comply with so many requirements that I cannot bear to take up an activity that has a to-do list. Monica, it's Sunday morning. I'm not running on a Sunday. Why not? Because it's Sunday. (laughs) It's God's day. You say stop, and we stop. Okay. Stop. In fact, a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research reported that even when people were paid to go to the gym, most were not motivated to do so. No, come on, we can't stop. Come on, we got three more pounds to go. I am the energy train, and you are on board. Woo-woo! 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 I'll say that line again. Most were not motivated to do it. Money could not camouflage the reality that many have lost that love and feeling for organized pain. You know, I try to stay positive. So you. 
You feel like going for a run? Because, you know, you don't have to. If you want, you could just take a nap right here. Okay. And when the sales pitch is no pain, no gain, how surprising is it that many people just say no? Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. As my own children reach adulthood, I listen to their conversations about how they should exercise, if only they had the time. Should stands doomed in the English language. A verbal storeroom for closets we don't want to clean or vegetables we don't want to eat. Uh, you know, we really should quit. Okay, let's quit. Yes, great! <laughs> as soon as you should do something, you don't want to do it. Hey! Hey! Uh-oh. Busted. <laughs> Rachel, we tried to quit, but it was too hard. In today's competitive school environments, the emphasis can be so much on winning that coaches don't want to spend time with kids in general, but rather a specific few. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? So they call every team to no. the top players. If a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Forgotten is the beautiful model of days past, called my childhood, in which every kid could come out to practice and to participate with the team. Hey, little buddy, hold up, man. While only a deserving and talented few suited up on game day. Don't you understand, man? If you don't cool it out there, you're going to end up getting yourself killed. If I cool it, I won't be helping you guys get ready for the next week's games. Got it? The team was bigger than the perfect, and the fun of training together was its own reward. If you need a reminder of that, watch the movie Rudy with a box of tissues. You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. I am a proud member of the track B team and will probably live longer for it. The A team intensified their performances and ran until they were sick in the grass, striving for excellence, admirable to be sure. But on the B team, we jogged on the track, rarely so intensely that we couldn't keep the conversation running, and got out of school on the day of the meets to run a few races and cheer on the winners. Staying in shape in the context of community was the draw. Recently, I've rediscovered running, which for me means faster than walking, at a pace most likely to be the worst in any timed race. I don't want to train for anything, achieve anything, or set a record. What I like best about running is that I'm not working. I wonder if more people would overlook the fact that they're exercising if they could remember that it used to be fun outside. It feels a bit un-American to tell people don't go for the gold, but I suspect that more people would try getting active if it sounded less like work and a lot more like a reward. You want to play me? Outside, you get a break from work, chores, family, computers, and responsibilities. Take a page from your five-year-old self and have a moment of fun where the sun is shining. And don't let the fact that some will label your activity exercise ruin it. And that's Christy Stone Hamrick's story about exercise here on Our American Stories. And great job as always on that one, Greg.
is Our American Stories, and we love our American Dreamer series. We've brought you a lot of them, stories of entrepreneurs who've overcome really difficult odds to create companies, create jobs, create a tax base. It's the American dream, folks, getting out there and starting something, whether you're Steve Jobs or whether you've got the local auto body shop and you're employing some people and doing what you love, a restaurant, whatever. And as always, our American Dreamers series are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are out there fighting for public policies that make sense for helping small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. And today's story, like so many of them, is a real stem winder because growing a business is no duck walk. And they face mortal, mortal moments where they think everything's lost. We think they're as good as police procedurals, these stories. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story on a member of the Job Creators Network, Bob Luddy, the founder of Captivare, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And this story is a real stem winder. If you think about people that come into the company today, they see a very prosperous company. That's all they know about the company. If you go back to the early days, you'd have a, quite a different picture. And that every day was, can we survive one more day? That was the mission every single day. In the early 80s, we were in somewhat of a recession. We switched our payroll to monthly. I thought if we paid at the end of the month, surely we would be able to collect enough money during the month where payroll will not be an issue. Well, it turned out it was a big issue June 30th, 1980, because we had a $30,000 payroll with $2,000 in the bank. I even think back and I wonder how I finessed this. Basically, I told the employees, which was about 18 in number, that we were not able to make our payroll today for technical reasons. That's all I told them. And they mostly went along with it. They really didn't cause a lot of grief about it. So Monday went by, no money, and then Tuesday night, I had already received the mail. I decided to go back to the post office at 8 p.m., and there was a check for $28,000 from the Golden Corral, almost precisely to the dollar what I needed to make that payroll. So essentially, I was bailed out by a major customer who, in this case, paid their bill early. Go figure. It speaks very highly of your employees that they didn't really ask what the technical reason was. I'm pretty sure my wife would have uh, asked, what do you you mean a technical reason? (laughs) You earned that money and I have bills to pay here. Didn't you ask him what the technical reason was? You know, in a modern context, I can't even imagine that I could get away with that. I mean, people would be crazy. But somehow we did. Bob writes in his book, I'd done everything humanly possible to save the company. So now all that remained was the grace of God. I mean, I have a great trust in God that if we do our part and we ask for help, he will provide that help. And I think if I didn't have that belief in God, it would be a lot harder to function in the marketplace. One of the things I think you find very interesting in the market is that these companies that are Christian-based, Chick-fil-A is maybe a primary example, they're enormously successful in the market. People admire them, and people want to do business with them. In our construction business, a lot of 
things go on that shouldn't go on, and we've never participated in them. One of our veteran sales guys called me one day and said, Bob, I figured out why we're so successful. I said, well, tell me why. He says, because we're a legitimate company. We do things honestly, correctly. We don't play games. And the marketplace appreciates the way we do business. I went, hallelujah. And if you think about today, the trouble individuals get into because they violate human decency, basic Ten Commandments, common law, is enormous. Conversely, the ones who are legitimate just continue to do better and better all the time because that's what the market wants. That's who they're going to do business with. Lessons that Bob began learning not too long after coming out of the womb, his Pennsylvania family didn't have much money and had 10 mouths to feed. It was competitive even in eating because we had a limited amount of food. So you better be at the table and get your share or you may end up short of food that day. So to get money, Bob had to make his own. Starting in elementary school, he delivered newspapers, shoveled snow, and babysat. And at age 11, he was working on a bread truck on weekends. Eventually worked in the drugstore during high school. The pharmacist was my mentor, teaching me the basic skills of business, uh, retail, inventory, delivery, dealing with customers who are difficult. Uh, it's almost as if I should have been paying him. This idea of first job is much more important in terms of learning life skills than actually making any money. And yet it's been turned around now that you should be paid a minimum of $15 an hour. Well, I don't know what 85 cents an hour would be today, maybe 10 bucks. Actually, it would be even less, $7.15. If minimum wage were $15, I never got that job. It would have made a profound, profoundly negative impact on my life. So I think that very, very often in modern contexts, whether it's the news media, consultants, academics, they really turn life upside down. And if you think about it, when I grew up in the 50s, life was a little different, a little bit less regulated. You couldn't work on a bread truck today at age 11. They put mom in jail for child abuse. But it was an important part of my life. Nobody got hurt. Everybody seemed to be a winner. So allowing parents to make decisions and allowing individuals to find the best that they can within the market they exist is important. And it's precluded now by massive regulation, misconceptions, etc. Bob went on to college and he didn't particularly want to. He didn't like school. But his dad wanted all the kids to go, so that's what he did. And after two years, he really wanted to get out. So this 20-year-old decided that buying into a fiberglass business was what he ought to do to stay sane. Fast forward nine years. By this time, Bob had been drafted into the Vietnam War, forced to sell his company to serve, and now was married and working in L.A. until he just couldn't stand the traffic any longer. And so we researched the areas of the country most likely to grow economically, and they'd move to one of them. And he chose Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a leap. I had no contacts, no job, didn't know anybody. When I got here, I thought maybe this wasn't the smartest idea in the world. 
Bob applied to every single job that was listed in the newspaper. And after two months of this, someone finally called and offered him an opportunity to sell fire suppression systems to restaurants. He did well, purchased their first home, and had his first kid until the CEO made a Sunday announcement to the sales team. Our pay was going to get cut about one-third. So I was making 30000 a year. Now I'm going to make 20000 a year. And my initial thought was I ought to be able to make 20000 a year on my own. Starting his own similar business. The second thought was I'm not well prepared. I don't have capital. I should have been more prepared for this day, but I'm, I'm not. And then I had a third thought, essentially said, look, there's times in your life when you have to take major risks, and this is one of those times. And if you fail to take that risk, other opportunities may come along, but this is your time to go. I think one of the things that came out of that is the fact that knowing that the, the risks were extremely high, I knew I'd have to go to all extreme possible efforts to make this thing work. I decided to use my home phone so I didn't have to do anything there. I got some business cards printed, and by Saturday, I made my first installation. So from Sunday, working for a company, to the following, the end of the week, I went from being employed to being self-employed. The nature of how I learned to do things, particularly for my mother, is she called it tomorrow never comes, meaning that if you're not doing it today, you're probably never going to do it. Even today, I do it today, I do it immediately. If it's a good idea, I want to hear about it now. Versus the bureaucratic mind that says, yeah, we're going to do that, I'll put on my list, I'll contemplate it. I'm much more of a person of action. And so that action allowed us to get underway right away. And the first check I received from the Saturday installation bounced. And when we come back, more of this American Dreamer's story, Bob Luddy's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American Dreamers segment, Bob Luddy and the founder of Captive Air, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And by the way, we heard some really remarkable stories about how we almost didn't make it. Well, we continue now with the story. He's already shaken up one industry and a few unintentional experiences would lead him to try and shake up another. I had a woman who worked part-time taking care of my children after school, and she needed some more work, so I told her to come over to the office. We didn't really know what to do with her, so we, I said, well, have her do filing. So someone came to me and said, well, she's not able to do filing. And I said, no, come on, anybody can do filing. Just show her how to do it, she'll be fine. 
And what we figured out is she didn't know her ABCs. So that was my first inkling that I was clueless. Later on in our shop, we realized that individuals could use a tape measure if it was increments of one inch. But if it was one inch and one sixteenth, they couldn't read it conceptually. They didn't understand it. And I thought, how is it possible that someone could graduate from high school, but they couldn't do fractions? They didn't understand fractions. That was my second clue. And I thought, as a society, this is a disgrace because we always say that we love our children, we want the best for them, we want them to have good education, but we support a public school system that only really educates about 25% of the students and culturally destroys close to 100% of them. So Bob decided to do something about it. First, he took up North Carolina's Education Commission on becoming their co-chairman. My take-home was that academics will discuss any topic at nauseum, but they have no intention of really changing. They just like academic discussions. So at some point that came to an end without any great success. And so Bob decided to try something else. In 1997, I ran for school board as a reform candidate. I won the first round, but in the second round, narrowly lost, which turned out to be a great blessing. And I decided to open a public charter school. Charter schools are public schools that are allowed more freedom to innovate. In the first weeks when I announced that we were going to have Franklin Academy, one of the local school board members came to me with me and he said, well, I want to inform you that nobody's going to go to your school except a few malcontents and misfits, and there'll be darn few of those. But we opened with 160 kids. Even better, the students liked it. They loved coming to school. So as we went forward, our waiting list began to grow. The state law requires that you have a lottery for admission. A game of chance where students are chosen at random. Year two, we began the lottery, and it grew to over 2,000 students. There are four kids on the waiting list for every one seat that is available, which means that only 25% of them will win the lottery, and 75% of them will be declared losers. Losers who are forced to go to some other school that they don't want to go to. I think it's just a luster of, of tremendous pent-up demand. In business, we would call it a very strong market signal. That almost, more than any other point, describes the extreme frustration and dissatisfaction with the public school system. Bob, being Bob, hoped to serve these kids that the lottery declared losers by opening more charter schools so that no child would be left behind. But the government wouldn't allow him to. The charter school bill only allowed for 100 charters. By the mid-2005, all 100 were out. You couldn't get more charters. So yet again, Bob tried something else that once again 
in no way benefited his family. So I met with a small group of parents in 06, talked about the idea of a private school. So by 07, I opened Thales Academy with 20 kids in our corporate office. It's now grown to 2,600 students, six campuses, and we have five campuses currently under development. And my goal was to create a large private school network that would prove there is a better way. Our theme is high quality, affordable, which essentially in the private school world doesn't exist. So we picked $5,000 for K-5 as a tuition 10 years ago. We have not raised that tuition in 10 years. For context, Washington, D.C.'s public schools cost $30,000 a kid. Many top private schools are $20,000 a student. North Carolina's public schools are $9,300 a student. And Bob's Thales Academy is almost half that. Now, from a financial management standpoint, it's a formidable task. You have all these myths of small class size. When I went to high school, there was... 50-plus students in every class. It was a pretty darn good high school. So I know from firsthand experience that having 50 kids in a classroom doesn't make a darn bit of difference. Those same students, when they go to college, might be in a class of 100 or 200 or 300. Nobody's concerned about it. So the concept of small class basically is a union idea to create more jobs and make life easier on the teachers. So one of the things we have to do is have a reasonable class size, which we describe between 20 and maybe 30 at the outside. We have to eliminate every potential inefficiency. So in a K-5 building, we have an administrator and an assistant administrator, and everybody else is teaching. That allows for tremendous efficiencies. Whereas in public schools, For every single teacher that they have, there's a whole other employee not teaching. Only half of their staff are actually teaching. And to conclude, I had to ask Bob, why is he still running this company and launching schools at his age? The guy's in his 70s, and he's had this wildly successful career. Shouldn't he be on a golf course somewhere? You know, for for many individuals who go into business, they aspire to get rich, retire, and enjoy the money. Obviously, I want to make money, but the things that money produces, mostly I'm not interested. So I'm not a sportsman. I don't care to, to go on exotic vacations. I actually love the work. I love building the business. The money is not all that important to me, even though it is a way you keep score for any business. Uh, one of my uh, associates some years ago said, you have more money to spend than anybody we know, and you spend the least amount of anybody we know. And, and the reason is that money isn't my goal. My goal is to create a great company, to have the opportunity to work with amazing people. That, to me, is my life. Going on an exotic vacation has no interest to me whatsoever. Having some exotic sports car has no interest. I believe that as your life goes on, I'm 72, your greatest contributions are coming 
later in life because you have this tremendous amount of experience. You've got a whole company behind you that you didn't have all those years. So the opportunity to serve is enormous in that time frame. To put yourself off the playing field, for me, doesn't make sense. And what a story. And we've heard this story again and again from our American dreamers, from our entrepreneurs. It's not the money. It's a scorecard. But it's the jobs. It's the company culture. It's the meaning that work brings to people's lives. Our American Dreamer segment brought to us by Job Creators Network. Bob Luddy's story. Captive Air's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story of a song, one of our favorite segments here on Our American Stories. And this one features two musicians who were reputed to be seeking perfection. But as guitarist Dean Parks said, quote, perfection is not what they were after. They're after something that you wanted to listen to over and over again. Let's take a listen to what Greg Hengler has for us today. They were hipsters before the term was coined, which would make them the real deal. It's widely considered that over-engineering a track ultimately ends in failure. Not here. In an age before Pro Tools, Steely Dan engineered some of the best analog production ever. So exacting, so tight, their style was a sophisticated and seamless fusion of jazz and pop music. Their style became known as Yacht Rock, and Steely Dan docked a fleet of remarkable hits. The band consisted of just two core members. Donald Fagan grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, just a 20-minute drive to New York City through the Lincoln Tunnel, and Walter Becker, who grew up in Queens. Here's Walter Becker. Your everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast. So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna last. The original Steely Dan band was formed in 1971. There were five of us, and Donald and I wrote the songs. Are you reeling in the east? Stowing away the time? Are you gathering up the teas? Have you had enough of mine? We toured for a while to support the first couple of albums, but we didn't really like it, so we stopped in 1974 didn't tour again for 19 years. By the time uh, we released Asia, the other members of the band uh, were gone except for Denny Dias. And uh, we'd replaced them with session musicians and some of our favorite soloists. Here's Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and fellow session contributors for the Asia album providing a fascinating glimpse into one of those recordings, Peg, on track four. Drummer Rick Morata recounts what many consider one of the greatest drum groups ever recorded. I see your picture. I feel nothing but pride from that track. It was one of the best tracks I ever played on. As far as drums were going at that time, it was like 
If you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet, you could uh, <clears throat> play. I had just opened my hi hat a hair every couple of beats with what I was playing with my right hand on the hi hat, and it created this little sound. Now, I've done that, but never ever heard it on the record that I had done because engineers and sounds at the time, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it's a nuance and those things didn't exist. Here's Fagin and Becker in the studio playing with the soundboard while admiring the sneaky bass stylings of Chuck Rainey. As I remember, this was kind of a written bass part, but he fixed it up in his own. Parts of it were written. Right. This part was written. Mm. This verse part. Just a great musician slapping and also fretting with his thumb. Chuck had a really unique. But here's the chorus, which was a. You'd have to ask Chuck about the thumb business, you know. They didn't want me to slap, I think mainly because at that time, slapping was just becoming popular and it was on a lot of records. However, my being a player, I think there are some songs that slapping sounds good. And no matter who you are, you want to keep in the fold of what's happening. Uh, Peg, uh, uh, that bridge there just seemed to be a slapping thing for me. They said, well, no, play with your fingers, uh, you know, something like that. And then... You play these songs so many times that after a while, I remember just turning just a little bit, either this way or this way, and putting up a uh, partition. And uh, they were about that high. That's, of course, sitting in a much lower chair. And uh, I remember, you know, slapping. They never knew it went down. They never knew it, except afterwards, you can tell there was a difference in that bridge. I'll put in the keyboards again here so you got like here's your little rhythm section little trio here it's Rick Murata, it's, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting that, that I'm listening to now is that you don't really hear in a, in a lot of groups that you hear there's a lot of doubling between the uh, bass and the kick drum and you can hear here that the, the kick drum is all sort of syncopated it's not really you know what I mean? It's not doubling so much the strong beats that the bass is playing. You gotta love them, but it's not like you go in there and you're just really good friends and you'll play and you'll try to get into it and they'll say, yeah, that's really good. And then the next day somebody else is doing it, a whole other band. It wasn't like they played musical chairs with the guys in the band. They played musical bands. A whole band would go, and a whole incredible other band would come in. We never came up with a band of our own that we felt was the right combination of guys, that it was stable. It was just me and Walter. You hear somebody in a record, and you say, wow, listen to this, this guy's a great solo, so let's have him come in. And you know, what would he be good on? You know, what would suit his style? You know, that's fun. This tune, I think, is infamous among studio players in that we hired a couple of guitar players, you know, to play the solo, and, and it wasn't quite what we were looking for. Uh, 
until mm -hmm. we got through three or four, five players. Six, six, six players, or seven, six you or know. Six or seven, eight players. Something else soloed or, oh, there it is. Let's check this out. Put it, go back, and let's hear it in the track. Probably the, the the last guy to try it before Jay did it. Here's another one. And what is that? Some kind of little envelope filter thing he's got going there on his guitar? Didn't you hear someone do this to you? And then finally, um, Jay Graydon came in and did it with no um, difficulty whatsoever. Yeah, it's kind of kind of a Polynesian. Sort of prefigured my own later resonance in Hawaii. Here's the great Michael McDonald. all in 3D. I had worked with them enough to kind of know what I was in for. You know, <laughs> certain words that they just wanted to hear a certain way that. You know, normally under normal normal circumstances, people wouldn't. You know, they kind of. This is the words you hear the parts. Uh, you sing it, and you know uh, that's the phrasing. But for those guys, uh, phrasing could have such nuance. You know that. Uh, you know, singing a line like half as much as you'd think. Oh, you know, how many different ways can you say it in that phrasing rhythmically? And you know. But it would be, it would come down to such fine points like uh, pronunciation and uh, exact rhythmic, you know, uh, vibrato, no vibrato, you know, uh, things like that. And so it was always real challenging. He did a couple parts on, on top of himself. All in 3D, foreign movie. Let's check out his high part just to embarrass him. Cool. Back to you. Sorry, Mike. There it is. Solo ears, too. All in 3D foreign movie. Peg, back to you. Peg doesn't sound like much of a part, but the harmonies were so close that um, that was a, a real learning experience for me to sing a chord, you know, part by part with myself. That, you know, when you're going back into to sing that next harmony, it's so close to the note you're singing it. It was just uh, real hard for me to discern that interval and, and keep it in pitch, you know. We had a pretty specific idea about this, uh, how these background parts would work and the sort of swing band rhythmic approach and how we wanted it phrased and so on. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story 
And so many different ways songs come to be. Some it's spontaneous. Some, my goodness, over and over again. Laborious. Fastidious. And that's Steely Dan, the ultimate studio band. The story of a song, Peg, and how it came to be here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some... Everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change, and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist-related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang-related and racist tattoos for free. And there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because um, it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face. And he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was will, and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger, and, and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so we discussed lasers. But the bottom line was, I really could see the hurt, you know, that this guy was going through because he had done this, you know, gotten these tattoos, and that he needed. He just wanted to. Uh, do his job and not have people follow him or, you know, and, and I could see that. And so my wife kind of looked at me and said, you know, you can help people. And so we made the post and this post that we made, I think that was on January something. It was mid January. Um, and we basically said, if you have hate or, uh, racist tattoos, gang or racist tattoos, that we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her, I said, hey, this thing, you, you know, the post you just did, 
is going viral and she thought she was like how did i get a virus you know like she didn't even know oh, man. what viral was so they needed some help once that happened i'd say you know we probably got thousand inquiries to uh get help then we saw that that there was a need and we started redemption inc um, we had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it a Random Acts of Tattoo. She kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption Inc. because it was it's less to say than Random Acts of Tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do, name it, and... Um, it just, and, and then that took off, actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives, giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You know, I, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. I, that, that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling or, like, a lot of them are, are, are scared, because, number one, they're, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me. And a few of them even traveled from far away so far. And, so, and by the way, so far I've helped, personally helped 22 people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two. Yeah, they're, at first they're a little scared. But then once I get them, you know, in my chair, I talk to them like people. And, and you know, I, I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were... I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them, join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. It, the sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and, you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing. And it, and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20-something years of tattooing. You know, people people do feel that they have to, I guess. And so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody. And so, you know, doing that definitely makes me feel good. Like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable and, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media 
if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're... They get mad when people quit, and and it really is true. You know, blood in, blood out. Like a lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, "I don't feel like doing this anymore." It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, "Hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today." You know what I mean? Like, like we don't do that, so that they come when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but. We make sure that, hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff, and, you know, they, those guys kind of, I guess it's a a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or it it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, (laughs) you know, like you don't tattoo them and say property up. Like nobody should be property of anybody. And, and, you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to. You know, it's almost out of a a necessity or, or even scare. Because they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done, or felt, you know, the shame of, of uh, even hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made a mistake more of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes these folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others but also honest about their desire to change and many of the stories are actually very similar I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, there, 
the sad thing is they're all like they're all you know pretty much the same and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody and um you know of course part of the thing was i didn't want them you know if they want to tell me then they can but we don't i don't make anybody say anything you know because they've already been judged enough i have so far seen a couple of the people that i've tattooed moved on and, and you know they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms and one of the kids brandon that i tattooed he's engaged now and getting ready to get married and, and you know he uh he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo. It was really fun. He, he traveled a little bit to uh, come see us, but he was extremely... Actually, I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice, and, and he, you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he, he explained how he felt the shame of, of having to do what he had to do, but if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again, and, and again... Who wants to be a victim? And these people are truly making attempts to change. But, unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It's all been uh, pretty fun, and and, um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that, that, you know, they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just, wow. <laughs> like even the, the stuff going viral, and then, you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because you know not everybody the sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody there's always going to be somebody that says hey that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help it's sad that that these people believe them i didn't want to see those things so i had to separate myself from it it's kind of sad you know in my mind forgiving somebody is is more important you know and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions that it, it kind of got to me and, and you know, and it kind of, it kind of gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because uh, like these people, these people, they, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up 
send them on their way. They've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles. Let's just say that. I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) I help them remove obstacles. I I believe that the people that, uh, and I truly, really believe that, that they've already done what they needed to do. I didn't help them change. They did it themselves. I've tried to stay as humble as I possibly can. Like, you know, I have had people come up to me and, you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and and it it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face. But like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy. I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like, (laughs) I got picked to be that guy that it's so to speak helping people and and when in fact they've done the work already but someone has to do it i gotta say that someone has to do it have you guys expanded are there other places doing this are you trying to get other places involved yes actually yes to all those um when we made the website we actually got a few other people you know that, that would call us up and um in fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state. Like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate, uh, the, you know, the the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out and and not saying that i'm better than somebody else i kind of believe that like for example if someone in indiana needs help well of course that's you know pretty far away from maryland and you know they're not going to come here but if i have somebody in, in indiana that can help them then i'll send them to them but i also want to be able you know to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be, give them a good service. So we actually look look at their websites, look at their work, and hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption Inc. Whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave and help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys, inmates, my goodness, you got to choose sometimes. Not in a gang, you're going to get beat. you got to pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemption Inc., and that's I-N-K. Org. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc. story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and you're listening to some music by Fred Davis, recorded in the South Euclid, Ohio home of Howard Yusuk back in August of 1969. And you're thinking, who's Howard? Big record producer? Not exactly. These days, Howard is the vice president of research and publications at the Manhattan Institute, a free market think tank in New York. But back in 1969, he was a young man who loved the blues, and he was so impressed by his friend Fred Davis, he wanted Fred's music recorded. That's a friend. Let's hear more about this from Howard himself, here performing a piece published in the City Journal entitled The Fred Davis Blues. I always wondered what might have happened to Fred Davis. I'd be reminded of him by the half-inch, reel-to-reel tape recording of his music, of which I always took special care. I believed that music would be his ticket out of Cleveland's Huff Ghetto. When we lost touch, I assumed that nothing like that had happened. When I finally found out what had happened, it was both better and tragically worse than I'd imagined. He was a childhood friend in a way. We met when I was 19, in the summer before my second year of college. We both made our way early each morning through the stinging, low-hanging smog mist of Cleveland's industrial Cuyahoga River Valley to the factory where we unloaded 100-pound sacks from freight cars, piling them onto wood pallets. But our lives up to that point could not have been much more different. He was about a decade older, came to work by bus, sent by a day labor agency, and he had thick, strong arms that reflected time spent in prison. I drove the old Ford my father had bought me. I strained to lift, knowing that if I failed, I'd reflect badly on my dad, given his executive role in the front office. We learned by chance of our shared enthusiasm for the same music. Southern-born blacks outnumbered hillbillies in the shop, so the radio was tuned to either of Cleveland's two AM rhythm and blues stations. It amused both groups, though, when, to pass the time, I'd sing along, as I did one day to Chains of Love, Bobby Blue Bland's hit single that summer. It's three o'clock in the morning, baby, the moon is shining bright, sitting here wondering, where can you be tonight? It's three o'clock in the morning, baby. Lord, and the moon is shining bright. And oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, baby. And let me tell you, the moon is shining bright. And oh, I was just sitting here wondering, Lord, where can you be tonight? Lord, yeah. I learned that before he'd gone to prison in his hometown of Kansas City, Fred had played piano and guitar there professionally until he said 
he made the innocent mistake of carrying something for someone. Drugs, it turned out. It led to several years in the joint, as he put it, in the parlance of the 1950s hipster, in which an apartment was a crib and a girlfriend an old lady. I saw how well he could play during lunch break one day when I had brought my guitar to the job. When most of the others went across the street to drink, the two of us sat at a table outside where he played and sang. You could hear the Kansas City influence the more you listened. The jazz blues arrangements of Jay McShann confessing the blues. complex arrangements of Dinah Washington. What a difference a day makes. What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours. What the sun and the flowers. Harder-edged but still smooth stylings of Lowell Folsom or Eddie Boyd, five long years. Fred had a full set of his own originals, too, and he sang them with a piercing, high, tearful voice from deep, slow blues like Midnight is Falling. complicated tunes, subtle and swinging, with a hint of T-Bone Walker. 
Our relationship evolved to one of teacher and student. He showed me how to play all up and down the guitar, using big, rich chords fingered in an unorthodox way, his thumb wrapped under and up the neck. I later taught the fingering to my son, who uses it professionally. He gave stern, uncompromising musical advice. Don't play too loud and don't play too fast. Eventually, we'd spend time together after work at a small house owned by his girlfriend, Bertha Reed, a professional test kitchen cook in the heart of Cleveland's East Side Ghetto. She appreciated my interest in Fred, I think, but it seemed to me that she'd also grown tired and skeptical of his music dreams. He didn't play much around the house, she said. And when we come back, more of Howard Usick's remarkable story about his friend, Fred Davis. This is how music connects people, folks, across every race, across every class. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. We've been listening to the story of bluesman Fred Davis and his friendship with Howard Husick back in 1969. As Fred taught Howard more about music and the two grew closer as friends, Howard got an idea. At some point I resolved, idealistically, perhaps patronizingly, to rescue him. It would be my callow mission to restore him to his career in music. This was 1969, the summer of Woodstock. Civil rights, racial justice, they were in the air, even after the King assassination. Obscure blues musicians from Mississippi John Hurt to Magic Sam were being discovered or rediscovered by white enthusiasts and introduced to new audiences. I had a business plan, you might say, to record Fred backed by an amateur blues band of kids I knew from my suburban high school. I asked a friend who had moved to Philadelphia to take the tape to the blues agent, Dick Waterman, who lived there with his then girlfriend, a young Bonnie Raitt. Waterman expressed interest. I wrote Fred to let him know, and he wrote back in a letter filled with an almost desperate hope. At present, I'm fine and still working like hell. Man, I do hope something comes of that tape just sitting here wishing like hell, but I'm not giving up. I'm still with my old lady, she's tops. Also, I'm still off the alcohol. Well, Cat, I'm gonna close for now, but we'll script you later. You do likewise, and especially if you hear something from the tape. So, until later, always a friend, Fred Davis. I'd kindled his hope and felt responsibility to follow through. I arranged to meet with Waterman myself in Boston. He was tough and unsentimental, 
but sufficiently sold on Fred's music to write a letter on his behalf to Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, which had booked one of his clients, Mississippi blues singer Fred McDowell. Would they add Fred Davis to the program? I found his style to be quite good and a very interesting combination of a Kansas City style that also shows some of his earlier Arkansas home as well, Waterman wrote. If you could possibly use him on your program, I'm sure that his pride would be restored and his very fine music would not be abandoned. A whole new life, I hoped, would open up for Fred. Having moved on from the factory job, though, I never heard how it turned out. I never heard again from Fred. I always wondered, I feared, in fact, that I'd given him false hope, meddling unnecessarily in his life, and perhaps giving the impression that I was much more connected and capable than I was. It was a dynamic of which Dick Waterman was clearly aware, as reflected in his letter to Baldwin Wallace. I have not told Fred that I am writing to you because I don't want him to get his hopes up too high. It was not until just recently, enabled by a subscription to the Ancestry Search Service, that I found out what happened. A review of the digital files of the exponent, Baldwin Wallace College Student Newspaper, reveals that the school's April 10, 1970 folk festival included blues legends, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Muddy Waters, but not Fred Davis. Whether they didn't want to include him, or if he declined for some reason, I can't say. But the story of Fred's fate emerges from public records. An Ohio death certificate dated November 8, 1988, almost 20 years after I knew him, reveals that Fred Davis, 49, identified as a laborer, had died of a gunshot wound to the chest with multiple visceral perforations. A Cleveland Plain Dealer story went further. Two men had robbed him of cash in a liquor store parking lot. When Fred resisted, one of them shot him. Such is the tragedy of talent bleeding out as it does every day in black America. Davis was that year's 122nd homicide in Cleveland. But there was more. Someone had gone to the trouble to write an official newspaper death notice for Fred Dave Davis, son, Oscar and Emma Davis, Kansas City, Missouri, member the Blues Express Band. Blues Express? Had he rebuilt his career after all? Had my encouragement mattered? I could learn the answer to the first question, at least. Blues Express still plays around Cleveland, and I was able to track down its new leader. Crazy Marvin Braxton, he'd taken over after the man he called Dave had died. I was working as a doorman at a hotel downtown, recalls Marvin, when they told me, get to St. Vincent's, that's the charity hospital. Dave's been shot. He was good people, Marvin said, a demanding band leader who always cautioned members, yes, not to play too loud or too fast. With a significant local following, the band played regularly, it turned out, at Fat Fish Blues for mostly white blues devotees, but also at Andy's Lounge in the lower middle-class black Buckeye Road neighborhood. Fred had fans, including a pudgy white suburban couple who never missed a gig. He was planning to renovate a new girlfriend's house and to marry her at the time he was shot. He didn't deserve that, 
Why would somebody shoot him, I asked Marvin. Just for the thousand dollars he was carrying? How would they have known? Fred, it turns out, had another side. Everyone needs a hustle, Marvin said. Fred, apparently, was selling liquor illegally from the back of a car. He'd buy it in bulk from the liquor store that he was going into at the time he was shot. The two cousins who held him up knew about Fred's business from their sister, who was a disappointed girlfriend. When we went to Dave's place, Marvin told me, we found hair powder she'd put under his pillow. It was voodoo. One of the two robbers, the actual shooter, hanged himself in a Cleveland jail. His accomplice was sentenced to five to 20 years for manslaughter. Two years later, in 1992, he sought probation, citing his Lima Correctional Institution Certificate of Achievement for having completed a substance abuse program, as well as the fact that he hadn't been the one who pulled the trigger. He was a Vietnam veteran. His request was denied. It's a tragically familiar story of black-on-black -black violence. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. The statistics are grim, but they can't reveal how much talent and how many dreams die each year on Cleveland's east side, on Chicago's south side, or in so many other neighborhoods. My friend's murder was an obscure act of violence, passingly mentioned in a small newspaper story, yet every day such obscure acts silence talent and potential. Was the Fred Davis I had known the same guy who sold bootleg liquor from his car? Had he really been set up all those years before in Kansas City? A search for legal records or newspaper stories about his criminal case comes up empty. The only record of Fred's life in Kansas City is a yearbook photo, circa 1959, from the city's then all-black Lincoln High School, where he was a member of a clean-cut, neatly-dressed class, many of whom an Alumni Association website shows have gone on to professional accomplishment, as Fred did in his own way. Located near 18th and Vine, the mecca of Kansas City jazz, Lincoln was the school for college-bound black kids. Records show he'd come from a two-parent family, one of 10 children, born to an Arkansas sharecropper who had moved to Kansas City to work for the railroad. Had he always had a dark side? Perhaps an unjust drug bust had soured him. Perhaps a criminal record kept him from having the sort of day job that other Blues Express members had. Maybe he just couldn't stand menial work, not when he knew what it felt like to write a great song and sing the way he could. I still have that tape. It's been transferred and digitized. You can listen to it now on SoundCloud. Just search for Cleveland Blues, Fred Davis. The Lincoln High Alumni Association may be honoring him. I'm interested in recognizing him and for his music to be played again. I admit it, I'm still trying to save Fred Davis. And what a story. And thank you, Howard, for sharing that with us. And we'll do our best by playing Fred's music right now. Howard Yusick's story 
Fred Davis's story, and sadly, as Howard pointed out, when people get shot like this or killed like this, it's the talent that gets lost. It's a human life that's lost. We can never forget that amongst the grim statistics. He was the 122nd male African-American, many of them in Cleveland, gunned down in 1988. A life cut short, talent cut short. And so we leave with all of us listening to Fred Davis here on Our American Stories.